It is now our joy to continue our worship through our study of Genesis, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. All right, so Genesis chapter 18, and we'll look at verses 1 through 15 together. And if you're visiting with us today, we're so glad you're here, you'll find the text on page 12. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed out to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Here we have a story of our God who accomplishes the impossible. And if your first reading of this text was anything like mine, you read it thinking a little, meh, yeah, if God does the impossible. Not, God does the impossible. There's a difference between the two. The point of this passage is clear, it's easy, it's it's not hard to figure out. But the significance of this passage is difficult. I would liken our experience with powerful texts like this to that of the Apollo 11 mission that happened 50 years ago this summer. It's all in the news, even CNN tonight is going to broadcast another special about that fateful night 50 years ago when Americans first accomplished the supposedly impossible. Now, for those of us who were born after that date, who don't remember seeing that forever imprint of the the boot on the moon and 
hearing Walter Conkright with his smooth voice announce the play-by-play and those memorial words of the astronauts. The moon landing is something that is a big deal, but it's not that big a deal because we've done it. I read about it in a history book. Of course man can go to the moon. But for those of you who are in my generation who struggle to understand the significance of that moment, I would only encourage you to think back to the generation prior to that day. If you go back one full generation, you'll find that people still didn't have access to electricity and running water. Mark Twain hadn't written any of his famous novels. The Communist Manifesto had not yet been published. People were still fighting battles lined up with rifles and cannon. Ulysses S. Grant was in his second term as president. I mean, we are a world away from the moon. And yet, it would happen. Supposedly, mankind in that moment achieved the impossible. Even one journalist said, as ill-prepared as man may be, he has taken on the powers of God. But, not everyone was excited as excited about the moon landing as so many of us tend to be. In fact, civil rights leaders during this time were actively protesting the exploits to the moon because of its insignificance. One who would eventually take over for Martin Luther King Jr. after his assassination was actually at Cape Kennedy the day before the launch holding a sign that said, feed an astronaut for $15 a day. Feed a starving child for $9 a day. And while the leaders of the civil rights movement would go on to acknowledge that there could be some technological benefit to space exploration, they said that ultimately what in our day would communicate to about $150 billion was a poor use of money when $10 billion would have lifted every child in America out of poverty at that very moment. And so the question comes, man achieved the supposed impossible, but did he achieve the impossible in what matters most? Disease, death, depravity, deprivation, Depression? What did the moon landing do for all of that? Those are the things that are really impossible. And those are the things that God Himself, through the book of Genesis, is arranging to fix. That's what this book is about. Paradise made, paradise gained, if you will, and paradise gone, and then paradise regained again. And it would all happen. This grand reverse of the curse would happen through a seed. It's been like the overwhelming theme of Genesis up to this point. It seems like every story makes it back here. And yet, even in the inception of this seed who would come and bring God's restored blessings to a cursed world, God would set it up 
so that it would happen, listen to this, through the impossible. That's the story of Abraham and Sarah. From the very beginning of their story, we find out that they are two things, old and she is barren. And it is repeated over and over again. They've tried to find certain ways around this plan, and yet God's seed has not yet come. And what we last saw in Genesis chapter 17 is that God promises once more to Abraham that he will fulfill this promise, as impossible as it may seem. And do you know what happens in that account? Do you remember? In chapter 17, verse 17, what does Abraham do? He falls on his face and laughs. He just can't believe that God could do the impossible in this way. And here we have another story. But this one's taking more from the matronly perspective as opposed to the patriarchal perspective. We see that Abraham, as the father of future nations, certainly struggled in his faith from time to time. But we'll also see that Sarah, the the mother of the nations, if you will, struggles in her faith from time to time. And the story of faltering faith is intended to help bolster our own. That's what the story is about today. The God of the impossible. But it is a story that centers around two human characters and their faltering faith. And as we examine their faith failing, we will find a fix for our own. So let's listen to the story and then see if we can examine our own faith in light of their failures. The story has two halves. It's very simple, very easy to follow. Uh, The first half of the story would be the couple's obvious strength. Their obvious strength is in verses 1 through 8. And then the second half of the story that gets more to the point is this couple's hidden weaknesses, verses 9 through 15. So if you're taking notes, that's the best way to kind of follow what's happening here. I love how it starts off with these obvious strengths, because when I first read this text, this is just me being as honest as I possibly can be, I read my Bible just like you do, and I'm reading verses 1 through 8 on Monday of this week, and I'm thinking, why is this here? Who really cares that Abraham seemed to be such a nice and hospitable guy? Verses 9 through 15, God challenging Sarah for her defunct faith. That makes total sense to me. But there's an awful lot of ink spilt on Abraham seemingly being a nice guy. But it's more important than you think. Look at the text again and make sure that you're reading it from the view that the divine author intends. Right there, in chapter 18, verse 1, we know something that Abraham and Sarah do not. It says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Now, this is something, you need to keep this in mind, that you know, the omniscient narrator knows, but Abraham does not. He will proceed through this interaction with these three individuals, one of whom we will find out to be the Lord himself in human form. In total ignorance until the big reveal at the end. So keep that in mind. It's a sleepy day for Abraham. It's it's warm, it's hot outside. I think we know what that is. I was out of town this weekend, and I receive a text from my wife showing a map of the state of Florida, blood red, and it said that the heat index in Naples was 108 degrees. I've never seen it that hot. Admittedly, I've only been here three years. But it must have been pretty hot. Imagine that heat for a moment. That's exactly what Abraham's feeling. 
Abram's a nomad. He, he's, a, he's a wanderer. He's a shepherd. He's a Bedouin. He, he takes care of animals, and because of that, it requires him to move from place to place to place. He lives in a tent. And if you've ever been in a tent on a hot day, you know how stifling it can be. And so as was customary for most men in the ancient Near East, at the peak of heat of the day, they would actually take a little siesta, a nap. And then they would finish their duties till sundown. So Abraham here, right in this first verse, seems to be settled in for his customary nap right at the heat of the day to try to avoid that pain. And you know how it is when you're falling asleep. I see this in some of you on Sunday mornings. Your head will kind of fall and then you wake back up and you see and where I was here, then all of a sudden I was over here. And where we were on verse 7, now we're down to verse 14. You know how that goes. So Abraham has a similar thing happening here. His, his head is nodding off. It's the heat of the day, and the horizon in front of him is empty. And all of a sudden, when his head jerks up, the next time he sees three visitors on the horizon. They've broken the plane of view. And something weird, at least for us as Americans, happens here because Abraham gets all excited about these three people. Most of us are kind of like uh, people distant. If we see three people on the horizon... We're thinking of an excuse to get back in the tent. But Abraham sees three people on the horizon, and it says that this ancient Near Eastern patriarch, 99 years old, gets up and runs to these three people. What in the world is going on here? This is a mind-blowing thing. It says in verse 2, he, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, that's the Hebrew verb of shock, Three men were standing in front of him. And so when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. And look what he does at the end of verse 2. And he bowed himself to the earth. This is the same thing that he did for God a few verses back. Whatever the appearance of this man, something tipped Abraham off to their importance and their significance. And he literally prostrates himself upon the ground, not even knowing who they are. It says in verse 3, he says to them, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, some of you are thinking like, oh man, well, Justin, you said that he doesn't know who this is, but it says, O Lord here. What you need to keep in mind is that the word Lord in Hebrew is used sometimes to refer to God himself as Lord, capital L, as it is there in the ESV. And sometimes it's small L, Lord, same word. It's just a title of respect. It's the ultimate sir. It is someone who is worthy of our respect. It, it is someone who is in charge. In the same passage, the same word is going to show up a little later as Sarah is referring to her husband. Now, surely she doesn't think he's God. She was just giving him an honorable title. And so it's a little ambiguous here. We don't know for sure if Abraham recognizes who this is, but he does have a high view of these three men, and one of them in particular. Something is signaling this for him and he says, oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, and notice how he begs him here, do not pass by your servant. He is on the ground begging for these three men to stay. He says in verse 4, let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread or a bit of food that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. This is radical. I mean, he's even offering to wash their feet. When was the last time you washed somebody else's feet? Anybody? 
I got to ask, has anybody ever washed someone else's feet? Seven of us. Yeah, your children's feet. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking more adults. All right. I, I grew up in a church that would do this as an ordinance. Uh, they would have uh, baptism, communion, and feet washing, and we did it once a month, just with water, not with soap. But yes, I've washed people's feet, but it's not in my normal day-to-day activities, and I don't think it's in yours either. And yet, Abraham, as this wealthy, honorable senior, is offering to wash the feet of strangers and give them a bit of food, and he is begging them for it. I mean, guys, when you propose, you know how this goes, you get down on a knee because like, you're showing deference and honor, like you really want this to happen. He's down on his face. He really wants this to happen. He is begging them, please let me serve you. It's so countercultural to our Western context. And they agree. They agree. They actually agree to let Abraham do this. They, they clearly have something that they need to do, and yet Abraham convinces them to stay. And you look in your Bible here at verse 6. And Abraham, as soon as they said yes, went quickly to the tent. Now, notice the emphasis here. This is pretty cool. On on these hasty verbs. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three say is a flower. Knead it and make cakes. He doesn't even use a verb. He's just skipping right through stuff. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Do you notice the immediacy and the extravagancy of what's taking place here? Abraham says, look, I just want to prepare a little bit of food for you, but he does it quickly. He wants Sarah to move quick. He wants the guy that's going to dress the calf to do it quick. He wants to serve these guys hand and foot as soon as possible. They may be hungry. He wants to meet the need. And he also does it extravagantly. What you would normally expect in this culture of someone who was going to show hospitality in this way is that they would give the people a little bit of bread and that they would maybe cook something like a goat or a sheep. And yet Abram here tells Sarah to get three say as a flower. Now if you do the conversion rate on this, this is probably anywhere from three to five gallons worth of fine flour. There would be enough for each of these guys to have a couple full loaves of bread at least. I mean, it is radical and extravagant. And not only does he just pick a a little sheep or a goat, he says, get the young calf tender and good. Let's get the best cut of meat that we've got. You're going to dress this thing right now, and this is going to take hours. (laughs) He says, look, I want to feed you real quick. And instead, he lays out like a full steak dinner. It's extravagant. And then he even serves it with the traditional curds and milk. For those of you who have eaten Mediterranean food before, or maybe you've eaten something more Persian, they always serve some yogurt on the side, and that tradition continues till today. And so Abraham is ready to serve them. He even, while they eat, stands by them, ready to meet their needs, hand and foot. Hi, my name's Abraham. I am here, and I will be to serve you today. You know, it is, he is fully on hand for their needs. And the Westerner is thinking at this moment, This is just strange. If someone offered this type of extravagant kindness to me, I think I would run. Don't you get suspicious? When some stranger out of nowhere all of a sudden offers to be your best friend? Maybe it's that person at a tourist destination who tells you that they want to give you free tickets to Disneyland if you'll just come and look at their timeshare? 
You're like, I'm on to you. I know what you're up to. Or that email offer that you get. You know, like, make $1,000 a day playing video games from home. Like, I'm on to you. I know that you're not going to be that nice. And we would think if we were in these visitors' position as Westerners that, oh yeah, something's up. Abraham surely wants something here. But friends, sometimes we have different gaps between us and the Bible. Sometimes it's language. Sometimes it's the covenant. Like last week, we were talking about the covenant of circumcision and how that's differing from our new covenant. Here, the gap for us that we really struggle with is culture. Culture. Culturally speaking, this type of perceived extravagant behavior was fully expected and applauded by those who would be reading this text in the ancient Near East. We think, this is weird. They think, this is the way it should be. I'll give you a modern example. And I've tried to do some careful research on this because I think that there are probably scores of examples I could offer, but maybe the clearest and the most familiar would be that of tipping or gratuity in our own culture. Think back to this week. How many times have you left a tip for someone? Whether it be a restaurant, a barista, at the car wash. It's just a normal thing for us. We don't think anything of it. Fifteen percent. Now you go to restaurants and they offer 18, 20, and 22%. But this is just a very American thing. It's just the way we were brought up. When somebody does a service for us in certain industries, we're going to give them even extra above that which they are already making. And no thought goes into it. And yet, in Eastern cultures, especially China and Japan, Lee could attest, you don't tip for anything. In fact, in Japan in particular, they would be insulted if you tried to tip them for something, as if you were trying to buy them off. They would look into an American context and see normal interactions recorded and think, what in the world are these people doing giving others extra money on top of this? In the same way, hang with me, that we would look in this ancient Near Eastern text and think, what in the world is Abraham doing here? I want to bridge the cultural gap for you because you need to understand something. What is being done here is actually being applauded by the reader as a very evident and apparent expression of righteousness. Abraham is being portrayed in this as someone who was very externally good. Fifty years ago, at least where I was from, in eastern North Carolina, preachers had a, a certain standard of external righteousness You've heard the old quip before. It's only a little bit of a joke. It goes this way. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't run with girls who do. Right? (laughs) If you didn't smoke and you didn't chew tobacco and you didn't drink and you didn't dance and you didn't go out with girls who did the same thing, at least externally in some of the southern culture that I grew up in, they would like put you up on a pedestal and say, there's a righteous person. Now, it's a defunct view of righteousness, keep mind you. But you get the picture. There's a checklist that you can follow, and you can know, like, oh, there's a good guy. Oh, yeah, here's a moral, upstanding citizen. What's happening here in these first few verses of Genesis chapter 18 is that the reader is going, oh, yeah, Abraham, he may have had his foibles in the past, but here is a good guy. He checks off the list. Notice externally, apparently, how he shows righteousness, I mean, excuse me, shows generosity and hospitality to these visitors. This was the cultural norm of the day. And can I add this? It's not the point of the text, but don't worry, I'll be quick. 
Did you know that such radical hospitality is expected of all of God's people? Remember Hebrews 13 too? It says, love one another and show hospitality to strangers because in it you may be entertaining angels unaware. Where do you think that text comes from? Here. God's people, in fact, pastors, when it says that they must be hospitable, and elders at Great um, Faith Bible Church, we need to remember this, one of the requirements of an elder is that he's hospitable. And do you know what hospitable means? It doesn't mean that you invite your buddies over to your house. It means you are a lover of strangers. It's two Greek words, philos and xenos. You ever heard of xenophobia, someone who's afraid of strangers? This is that. You are a lover. You make people feel at home. You make them feel part of the family who are outside the family. This is what is expected of all of God's people, even though it isn't normal to our culture. So for what it's worth, keep that in mind. But back to the text for a moment. They're reading this and they're thinking, oh, look at this. Apparently, Abraham, he's a good guy. And that's why I say that this is his obvious strength. What is the obvious strength of this couple? Their hospitality. They're all in. But the text will not stop there. While it gives us this positive external portrait of Abraham, we move now to the second half of this passage. And it's here, despite Abraham's apparent strength, that we will see and uncover his hidden weakness. If the apparent strength is hospitality... The hidden weakness that the text wants to expose is his lack of faith, his faltering faith. We know he has believed, and yet he and his family still struggle. Look at verse 9. They they said to him, now keep in mind, they're benefiting from his hospitality, and they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, pause for a moment. Uh, This is a world of sheepskin and cloth domiciles. What I mean by that is they live in tents. There's no walls. And sound can carry. The men do something significant here. This is our first clue that they're of divine origin because they actually say, not just, where is your wife? They say, where is Sarah, your wife? Her name hasn't been disclosed yet, and yet they already know it. Something is tipping Abraham off to the the divine identity of these visitors from the very start. But there's something else going on here. You know how it is if you're ever in a conversation with someone? You're busy about your own business. You're talking to someone who's right in front of you, and you hear your name somewhere else? All of a sudden, there's this keen interest to move from the current conversation to conveniently place yourself to the other conversation to find out what happens to be said at the moment. This is exactly what's going on here. The men will intentionally introduce Sarah's name because they want her to hear what they're about to say. And let's see what they say. They ask, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Hebrew, the word behold is there again right before that. He's saying like, look, right here. She, I mean, we're eating right by the tent. She's just right on the other side of this, this curtain. So she's close. She's within earshot. And verse 10 says, well, verse 10 actually says the Lord said. Unfortunately, that's not in the text. So the text just says he said. Again, the divine identity hasn't been disclosed yet. He said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Imagine overhearing that conversation if you're Sarah. 
She's 90 years old, and she hears, apparently for the first time, that she is actually going to have a son. If you'll think back, Sarah has known that God will fulfill his promise in some way, but he never thought it possible, she never thought it possible that it would happen through her. That's why she would offer up another woman for Abraham to have a physical relationship with. And they're just assuming at this point that it's going to be Ishmael. But we know from chapter 17, Abraham already knows. He already knows what's going on. He already knows that it's going to come through Sarah. God already told him that. And you're wondering as a reader, like what kind of communication breakdown happened in this home for Abraham to know this and Sarah not to know this yet? And I would only tell you this, welcome to marriage. Husbands just have a way of remembering the banal and the unimportant and just leaving out the details, <laughs> right? Pretty significant detail. Abraham has not yet maybe mustered up the courage. Maybe he's trying to protect her. He hasn't yet communicated this to her, and clearly she hears this for the first time, that this promise will actually come through her. And it says, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And notice this, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And here's a, a comment from the narrator in verse 11. Just in case you didn't remember. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. Advanced in years, just in case you didn't catch what old means. <laughs> They're advanced in years. And then a biological reality. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Scientifically, she is postmenopausal. She is 40 years past ever having produced any egg, any possibility of a child. That was way gone in the rearview mirror. Physically impossible. The Guinness World Book of Records actually says that the oldest woman to ever have a child was 70 years old. And you're thinking, well, how did that happen? In vitro fertilization. Even with the modern marvels of science, we still can't make it so that a 90-year-old woman could have a child. It is impossible. And the narrator wants you to identify with this. Because here's the truth. Those are just the facts. And as John Adams said in his defense of the soldiers at the Boston Massacre, Facts are stubborn things. And indeed they are. You know what it is to hold to stubborn facts. We live our day, our lives by facts. The fact of gravity, for example. Uh, we know what would happen to us if we accidentally plummeted off the balcony. Hence, it is so funny to me, even though there is a wall there, it is clear, and most people, when I watch them walk by, will stay to the edge of the wall because they're aware of the reality of gravity. They don't want that little glass banister to give way. We just live our lives in light of that, and it makes sense. We live our lives according to the facts of economy and how it works. You spend more than you make, you're not going to last very long. We have to track our budgets. We, we know that we, we, there's no money tree somewhere. We, we have to save. We conserve. We earn. Those are the facts. And so the narrator here is just preparing us, saying, look, just keep in mind 
she is right to stumble at this promise because these are the facts indeed. But here's the problem, friends. When we start to impose the facts of this life upon the God who rules over it, we have then transgressed into sin. And that is the point of the lesson. Because notice, notice exactly what the narrator is going to say here. While he concedes that those were the facts in verse 11, he's going to acknowledge Sarah's sinful response in verse 12. Notice what she does. Sarah laughed out to herself, laughed out to herself, saying, now notice this, she does it to herself, she's not laughing out loud like Abraham, this is one of those internal chuckles, you've done those before, and this is what she says internally, no one else can hear it, supposedly, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? <laughs> I love the, uh, I mean, she, she, here's a woman who knows the facts, because she's like, I'm worn out. I mean, worn out is the stuff that you don't even give to goodwill. She is saying that this is what my body is right now. I am done. And my Lord, my husband, he's old. As tastefully as I can say it, the implication is that they had not been intimate with one another in several years. She says, shall I have pleasure when I'm old? We're done. Those are the facts. But God will not rest with the facts. Verse 13. The Lord said to Abram. Now this time, friends, I pointed this out for a reason. This time, the word of the Lord, uh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, is actually in the text. Here the narrator wants us to know that this is the point in time at which Abraham finally realized who he was speaking with. And notice what the divine word of the Lord tells him. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? He's communicating here, I've got the facts. I know how reproduction works. But I said that I would produce a child through your dead womb. The word too hard is translated in other places in the Bible too wonderful, too astonishing, stupendous, amazing. Is there anything too amazing? Is there anything too mind-blowing for the Lord? And the obvious answer to that is no, because he goes on to repeat the exact same promise he said two verses earlier, and you see it there in your Bibles. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. This is the inescapable promise that God himself would do that which was humanly impossible to accomplish his rescue plan. What has happened here is that the lid has been uncovered on her hidden unbelief. Friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. Here is the point of the text in living color. Externally and on the outside, from all intents and purposes, from what people could tell with the human eye, Abraham and Sarah seem to be a moral, upstanding couple. They do all the right things. They check off the social box. 
And yet, despite their external or apparent expressions of righteousness, they were still faltering in the one place that it mattered, and that was in their very hearts because they disbelieved that God Himself would do what He said He would do. And that is a warning for us all. Because it is so easy to show up in a church like this and wear your Sunday best and then invite people over to your home and to be a morally upstanding citizen and to pay tithes and offerings and to check off all the external boxes that look so good and yet the text is wanting us to know that God sees past the shirt on your back into your heart and He knows whether or not you yourself are trusting Him for the impossible. And I think it's more prevalent than we would admit. What's interesting about the way this text ends is that it ends on a minor note. God is speaking to Abraham here. There's a nice little fact for you. Why would God speak to Abraham? Because Abraham, as the leader of the home, is accountable for his wife's lack of faith. Remember 1717, it was Abraham who laughed at the Lord. Here, naturally, what would happen? In his faltering faith, he's passed it on to his wife, and she laughs before the Lord. God holds him accountable, but he will not let her off the hook. It is at this point, at the end of the passage, that she speaks up and says, I didn't laugh. One sin covers up another. Or at least, attempts to cover up another. Because God knows. He knows your heart and mind. And he says, no, you did laugh. I know whether or not you are truly trusting me for the impossible. And so the real world question for every one of us in this room as we bring this thing to a close is what stubborn facts hinder our faith in God his promises to do the impossible. I'll ask it again. What stubborn facts hinder our faith in God to do the impossible? Before you answer this question for yourself, let me go ahead and answer the question for you through the eyes of the Israelite readers. They would have originally taken this text and been reminded of their supernatural conception as a nation. God would bring them into existence in the most impossible of ways. Could he have actually produced Isaac when Abraham and Sarah were 30 years old, 25 years old, 20 years old? Absolutely. But did he? No. He would start them off through an impossible means so that they would know that their existence is wholly owed to him. And by the way, this means that their preservation would also be wholly owned to him. If he is going to supernaturally create them, he will have to. He will have to supernaturally sustain them. And every time they would find themselves in impossible situations, they would look back to this moment and remember that God started us off in a supernatural way, in an impossible way, and he will preserve us in a supernatural and impossible way. Can I give you just one illustration of this? Do you remember when they were fleeing the grip of Pharaoh and his army? They're they're heading out of Egypt. 
and they're just getting out of Dodge. They are just trying to go a safe way, and yet, remember, they're being led by this pillar of fire. Do you know where the pillar of fire leads them? The pillar of cloud? It leads them. It could have led them around, but it leads them to the Dead Sea. I mean, excuse me, to the Red Sea. That, that column representing the presence of God could have gone anywhere, north, south, east, or west, and yet it will park them right at the banks of an ocean with an ensuing army behind them. Why? Because he would want them to know and remember that this is impossible and I will have to deliver you. And as they stood there on the plains of Moab, looking over into the promised land, hearing this for the first time, they themselves would have to remember, despite the overwhelming odds, that if they will become the true people of God, God will have to do it because it is impossible. They serve the God of the impossible. So they're asking themselves, what stubborn facts hinder my faith in God to do the impossible? And that's why I ask you the same question. What stubborn facts hinder your faith in God to do the impossible? Before you answer the question, I want to remind you of your own conception as the people of God. You remember the promise would be made that God would send this seed, and indeed, the seed would come. Isaac would come, and then Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel. And God would continue to work through this line. King David would come, and he would fail, but still there would be a promise from the prophets that one would come who would finally fix all this through that same line. And we find ourselves in Luke chapter 1, where it's been 400 years of absolute silence. It seems like God has totally forgotten His promises. There's no way that He's ever going to be able to pull out a rescue for the entire world. And an angel shows up to a virgin, another reproductive challenge, if you will, and says, the power of God will come upon you and you will conceive and have a son. And do you remember her response? She said, how can this be, seeing I know not a man? You know what she's saying? This is impossible. And the angel would continue to say, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that child would be born, and he would live, and he would reign over this earth for three years, totally dominating all the things that we were concerned about. Namely, disease, death, depravity. I mean, he would actually tell people that he would forgive them of their sin. He conquered every disease known in ancient Israel at the time. And then he himself would raise people from the dead. And he himself would conquer death, doing the impossible. And yet he, too, would put himself in an impossible situation by subjecting himself to the lawless, inhumane treatment of the Romans and the Jews, subjecting himself to none other than death itself so as to pay the sacrifice for the sin that you and I had all committed. And just to make sure, by the way, that he was really dead, they would stick a spear through his ribs, into his heart, water and blood would come out so that it would be done in everyone's mind that this guy isn't getting back up again. But he does. He does the impossible. 
He conquers death three days later, reminding everyone who would ever place their faith and trust in Him that He not only pays the penalty for sin, but He also provides the power needed to overcome everything that hell may throw against you. His resurrection stands as testimony that God Himself does the impossible. And so, for the last time I ask, what stubborn facts hinder your faith in God to do the impossible? This is a hard question to answer because analyzing your own erring or faltering faith is kind of like trying to analyze whether or not you have amnesia. It is is something that wouldn't be apparent to you Because it comes so subtly, so gradually. Maybe I'd give another illustration. It it, it would be like the 30-year-old young woman whose body has been riddled with cancer. Upon onset, she still looks as beautiful as ever. And yet, on the inside, she is riddled with the disease. Just occasional symptoms here and there will flare that would cause further investigation. I would say that on the outside, most of us here are looking pretty good. Everything seems to be pretty healthy, normal. But there may be some symptoms that disclose a faltering faith. A few of them would sound like this. The first would be, for those who struggle with God's faith to pardon sin, is statements of guilt. Do you ever make those? I am just such a horrible person. You don't know how many times I have just blown it. I know that God forgives, but we can't choose the bed we lie in. After all, the consequences are there. I mean, He may forgive, but consequences still come, and I'm just stuck to live with this particular lot in life. There's no way that I'm escaping this. He's still a little angry with me. Uh, friends, if that is statements that you make, you are not trusting God to do the impossible. Because as impossible as it may seem, that God would fully and finally forgive you of everything that you've ever done, rebellion against Him and in harm to one another, here's the good news, He's done it. It's done. The guilt that you carry around is a direct challenge to the God of the impossible. He died for that. His wrath was satisfied. For whatever that one thing is that you think you're still paying for. And you say, well, no, 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 Justin, you don't understand. I have real physical consequences for sin that I had done previously. Listen, that is not an ongoing expression of God's wrath. That is an extension of His grace and mercy. And He is somehow using that trial in your life now to make you more like Him. It is not an instrument of judgment upon you. It is an expression of grace to you. Does that make sense? Because the penalty's been paid. And by the way, the penalty wasn't some physical thing in your body in this life. The physical penalty for sin was eternity in hell, and Christ satisfied that through his death on a cross in three days of death. Another symptom or expression of someone who has a faltering faith uh, would be those who are constantly enslaved in perpetual defeat. The first one's guilt, the second one's defeat. What I mean by that is when we say things like, I was just born this way. 
in the face of a particular sin with which we struggle, will actually say things like, but listen, you don't know my background. Generations of my family members have struggled with this same sin. I'm no different. It's identity-based sin. Instead of accepting God's identity for us in Christ, we begin to set the world's label for us, and so we then call ourselves and believe ourselves to be whatever the world says we are as opposed to what Christ has made us. I'll just be really specific for a moment because this is a, an issue in our day. The issue of same-sex attraction. Nobody ever talks about it, especially in conservative churches like ours. I get it. But the truth is it's a reality. And some people will convince themselves, based on something that they heard in some seminar somewhere, that this is just the way that I am. And yet, this is not what Christ has said of you. If you are in Him, He has given you the, past, the capacity and the desire to overcome any sinful inclinations. Nobody grows up and just says, well, I was just born a thief, so I guess I'm going to stay that way. God changes the identity. Your family may have a history of gossip. Your family may have a history of alcohol abuse. Your family may have a history of enslavement to pornography. Whatever. I don't care. God said that victory has been provided in Christ, and you are not that anymore. You must believe God to do the impossible. Maybe a final expression of this would be, and this is true of us all, especially as we grow older, death and disease. Because it is in those moments where we begin to feel the effects of the curse in our very own bodies and we see it happening to those around us that we love. It'd be easy to buy into the lie that this is impossible. This is just where I'm going to end up. This is where life has taken me. This is the inevitable end. This is the diagnosis that I have to live with. I will never see that loved one again. But friends, in the human realm, indeed, you're right. But we serve a God who does the impossible. I'm not promising you that today He will reverse this particular expression of the curse of sin in your life. He could heal at any moment, but I assure you, He will heal when He returns or when you return to Him and death and disease are banished forever. It's too often we limit ourselves to what happens in this life, and yet we've been called to live not for this land, but for a land to come. It even says of Abraham in the book of Hebrews that he was looking for a land yet to come. We are looking for a body yet to come. We are looking to spend time with loved ones yet to come. There is still hope for our future despite the realities, the, the hard facts of death and disease. And so in the meantime, we trust our God to do the impossible. I'll give you one more and we're done. The first three that I gave you, those first symptoms of a faltering faith, deal with you personally. But may I mention one that pertains to us collectively as a church? The symptoms of a faltering faith, at least corporately as a church, would be people who are together lamenting the state of this world. We look at a place like China and think, 
oh my goodness, I just can't believe that the government is increasing persecution in that area. They're sending people off to these uh, mind retraining camps, and, and people are actually going to prison for their faith. Or we'll, we'll say that, can you believe what happened in Iran this week? Or China? Or North Korea? It's always somebody different. And, and we think, pardon the phrase, we think that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and that we're going down with it. We talk this way. We actually talk this way to other people like, oh man, isn't it so bad out there? And yet we serve a God who will advance His gospel around the world. He's already done it. Did you know that this thing started in Palestine 2,000 years ago and it is virtually made its way around the world we're so used to it now but the impossible has already happened and it will continue to happen the gates of hell will not prevail against the church god will accomplish his plan we need not fret or worry we can confidently step into the plan of god and i will say this as well god will rule over this world through the lord jesus christ It may stink now. I realize that it gets worse and worse by the minute. I know that the news is negative and pessimistic, and it always will be until Jesus actually comes to this actual place and fixes it all. As presidential primaries are looming and conservative Christians tend to get their blood pressure up, may I just remind you that the ultimate ruler that we're looking for is not the next president, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We serve a God who does the impossible. Let's pray. Father, help us to appropriate our understanding of your power. It is a fact in our minds, but it is one easily forgotten. I pray this week that you would encourage our faith. Not only in what you have done, but in what you are doing and will do in each of our lives. Do this personally. Do this corporately. And for those who have yet to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and repent of their sins, I pray that they would know today the truth and the reality that He can do the impossible. Or that He will forgive their sin and include them in the family of God. Lord, give us this hope and joy now, even as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.